white balance card. Now you know how pale I am objectively. (laughs) (laughs) This is Hard Reset, a series about rebuilding our world from scratch. Hello and welcome to the Hard Reset podcast. I'm Nick Tucker. I'm one of the co-creators of the show Hard Reset, where we like to discuss how we would rebuild the world from scratch. And we go and interview the innovators and look at the technologies that would make that possible. I'm joined today by Rob Chapman-Smith. Hi, I'm the editor-in-chief of Freethink. And Toby Morishano. Hey, I'm the community manager at Freethink. So this episode of the podcast, we're going to be talking about Wi-Fi. It's a really great episode, and they're really doing amazing work to help mitigate and prevent wildfires from happening. Uh, so please check that out. And then this episode, we're going to be diving a little bit deeper in, talking about some of the questions you had, talking about the things we didn't get a chance to cover as in-depth as we wanted. And uh, we're really looking forward to sharing this with you. So please make sure you like and subscribe and watch the rest of the episode. Why is Wi-Fi a hard reset? And could you explain to us what Wi-Fi even is as right. a project and technology? Yeah, so there's a lot to unpack. And and, one of the things about Wi-Fi is there's so many different things that they're doing that it was really hard to sort of just explain it all in one, even a 10-minute episode is not quite enough time because they're doing a lot of really impressive things. Wi-Fi is a project based out of the Supercomputing Center at UC San Diego, and it's run by Ilkay uh, Altintash, who is a researcher there who does a lot of amazing machine learning research. And it started out as a tool for predicting the behavior of fires. Now, in California, we have a lot of wildfires that get out of control fast. So how can you help firefighters respond to them more effectively? Can you use wind data to predict where the fire is going to go? It gets really complicated because fire is like a hyperdynamic situation where the wind affects the fire, the fire gets bigger, and it affects the wind, which then in turn affects the fire. So there are so many variables. You can't just run this on a spreadsheet and, and like figure it out. You have to have massive amounts of computing to try and simulate these things realistically. And that's something they can do at the UC San Diego Supercomputing Center because they have this amazing supercomputing complex. Once they started working with the simulations of fire behavior, what they started doing was realizing, well, we can actually start to predict where fires might occur so people could be more prepared. And now what they're working on with Wi-Fi is how can we predict the best way to prevent wildfires? And what that comes down to is looking at the fuel landscape, looking at how much dry fuel there is on the landscape of California by using satellite data, simulating where's the most dangerous areas, where it's the most dry and has the most potential for an out-of-control wildfire, and then figuring out the right conditions to go and do a controlled burn to reduce that amount of fuel. So they're working to try and restore the balance of nature in regards to fire. And so, you know, when they're doing this, you know, it makes me think of almost like Smokey the Bear, but like the high tech <laughs> version of it, like right. only you can prevent forest fires. It's like, right. well, okay, these folks are taking that seriously into the nth degree. But I'm, I'm curious when you say they're predicting where the most dangerous spots are and how dry it is, like what exactly are they measuring when they're doing yeah. those types of things? So they have a pretty remarkable data set. What they've done is they've found a way to take all these disparate sources of data. So you have satellite imagery, you have LIDAR, you have um, people who are going out and doing on-the-ground surveys. They found a way to use machine learning to kind of link all these different databases, different types of data, different data sources, and create a, a statewide database of all this um, information about the state of our forests and our wildlands in California. Got it, got it. So, so, yeah. And if you look at their map, they have like a three-dimensional 
like map of every tree and every bush and every like, and you can see where in what regions, how much fuel there is on the ground and how much of it is trees and how much is below the tree canopy and all that. It's an incredible amount of data. And so why was this a hard reset episode? Yeah, so the reason why it's a hard reset episode is that they're taking a totally new approach to preventing fire. In California, uh, and really in the entire American West, we've had this policy of every time there's a fire, we go and put all resources that we can to extinguish it right away for the last 100 years. The problem with that is um, fire is natural. Like before humans were here at all, fire would go through the landscape and there was no one to put it out there. Right. And when humans did migrate into North America, um, they found a way to live with that fire. So the Native Americans that you know used to live in, in the American West would use fire actually as a tool. And it was something that they just found a way to incorporate into their natural forestry practices. Well, European settlers really messed that up. <laughs> Long list. Anyway, <laughs> by putting out all the fire, there's just been a hundred years of accumulated growth of, you know, underbrush, smaller plants that are just perfect for, for lighting these sorts of fires, lots of dry, um, just ready to burn fuel. It's like a bomb. Right. And so all that has built up over a hundred years. So you can't just immediately snap back to natural forestry uh, practices. You can't just do that because there's so much fuel out there that it would be a disaster. And even if it was not a total unmitigated disaster, it would be, you know, it could be like a lot of little disasters. Like if you're a wine grower in Napa, right. you might have things to say about the person doing controlled burns upwind from you. Right. And that smoke can affect your crop. So there's all sorts of very like complicated factors. And these were the first folks who were really trying to get the kind of data set where you could actually bring us back to a state where you could do natural forestry management, where you could do these traditional methods and not have it be so impactful. Uh, and it, it does require a total rethink from the ground up of how we do forestry management. So I wonder in terms of, you know, you say this is a, a total reset for how we manage fires. I wonder what the, some of the details look like in terms of scale. Are we talking about more people? Are we talking about more foresight in terms of planning, in terms of schedule? Like what are some of the specifics that go into this? Yeah, it's all of that. So it's like <laughs> everything. Um, it's definitely more people because you can't do a controlled burn without like a lot of people out in the forest. We went to film in the Osceola National Forest in Florida mm. where they do controlled burns really regularly. And they have this amazing section of the forest where they have these one acre lots and some they burn every year, some they burn every two years, some they burn every four years mm -hmm. and some they don't burn at all. They're like controls. So this is a long running scientific experiment. I want to say it's like been 40 or 60 years oh, that wow. they started doing this project. So over the last 40 or 60 years, they've been understanding how does fire interact with the ecosystem here. Hmm. And, um, it's, it's a very different story. When you set fire to a lot that's been burned within the last year, it behaves very differently than the one that's been two or four or more years. So we went to go and film this, and it is an incredibly labor-intensive operation because you don't want this to get out of control. Right. That's the most important thing. So if we were to do this across the entire state of California, <laughs> you could imagine yeah. that that would take a long time. Right. And... The conservative estimate is that if we were to do this in California, it would take 10 years of burning a million acres a year mm. to get us back to a, a, a relatively natural state. 
Man. Well, you also wonder in, in contrast to the costs of letting the status quo exist. I mean, you've had right. entire towns burned down. You've had, you know, lots of people displaced and have to be housed and sheltered and stuff like that. You've had economic shutdowns when there's, you know, fires or smoke even going over like these huge economic centers and stuff like that. So I'd be curious to see like the, how it balances out, yeah. you know? Yeah. I mean, we're basically paying for a hundred years of this type of management, which, you know, after, a, a, you know, we're paying the interest due on that right now yeah. with yeah. these, uh, really disastrous consequences. Yeah. It makes me think of a book about Katrina that talked about the failures there in terms of the hundred years of earning urban, the hundred year of early planning that preceded the disaster. Right. And it might be important to think about wildfires and the way in which we have wildfire disaster now as a hundred year <laughs> like process of like, nope, the bill is due time to pay for it. Yeah. Um, and in that realm, 10 years doesn't seem like that bad of a trade-off. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But I mean, it's 10 years of intensive, right. intensive work with a lot of people uh, so it's it's not an easy thing to do, For sure. and I, I don't think anyone would would make that argument. And then after that, you'd have to continue doing it. Maybe right. not at the same volume, but you'd still need to be out there every year managing these types of fires. And at some point, it becomes a national conversation because, well, one, California's not the only state, right? Right. But also, it's just, um, it's just the only state that matters. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> but also, you just don't have that many people. You know, we don't have a hundred thousand people in California who can just walk through the forest and, right? You know, monitor brush. We so you're talking about probably changing immigration policy or something yeah, like that. Yeah, I was about that, to say, so if only there was a mechanism for people <laughs> yeah. in the country to do such a thing. Um, yeah. But I mean, I think these are, you know, it's interesting. We are seeing such a disruption in the agricultural world where we see more automation mm-hmm. in agriculture, where we're seeing, uh, we have an upcoming episode on a strawberry picking robot. And right. we have more and more of that happening, those innovations coming. What's going to happen to that labor force? Right. And partially, these robots aren't replacing that as much as they are supplementing it because it's getting harder and harder to find the folks who will do that work. Right. But at a certain point, there is going to be a, a labor disruption. And I have to wonder if, if it becomes more appealing for someone to take the job where they would be working in the forest, managing fires uh, over the long term than moving from town to town to do migrant farm work. So I think there is a more appealing option uh, 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 with, with really, honestly, a huge advantage in terms of advancement up into you know, ag sciences and natural forestry uh, management techniques that, that doesn't really exist for a lot of these other uh, jobs. Part of me has always wondered about, you know, I think there's been a decline in civic service in general in the United States, broadly speaking. And part of me wonders, like, what would be the good civic projects to, like, try to encourage people to do Mm -hmm. and maybe give some monetary incentive for them to do it? And this seems like one that makes a ton of sense (laughs) to, like, apply efforts to. And I always wonder, like, what's the blockage to getting those types of energies coordinated for something like this? I'm curious how well known is projects like Wi-Fire amongst like the California government and things like that, people who could potentially make those priority decisions to be like, hey, this is important. We need people to actually help out here. Yeah. They're working with Cal OES, which is the Office of Emergency Services in California, and they're working with them to help change our forestry management and provide tools. So I know they're working with people at that state level. They're also working with other states as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they're definitely working with the right folks to make those kind of decisions. There's also just a question of political will right. for these very large projects. I mean, this is a huge jobs project, right? Like if you were to employ, 
a few million people <laughs> to yeah. do this sort of work across this entire country, that would be, you know, extremely expensive. You can't just make that decision as, uh, you know, a small you know, agency. You would need a statewide Manhattan Project kind of mobilization to make that happen. Yeah. Do the National Guard or Army sort of enter into that conversation at all? I, mean, I suppose it could. I don't really know. Yeah. But I, I, I mean, I think there is just a, a manpower question here. Mm -hmm. I think also there is a opportunity to rethink jobs mm -hmm. in this country, right? We're seeing more and more automation in general, not just among migrant workers and, uh, and people working in agriculture, but every level of our economy is seeing more and more automation. Mm -hmm. And more and more people, I think, are going to start wondering, well, what can I do as a human that a robot can't? Yeah. And this is actually one of those things that I think humans will, A, do better, and mm -hmm. B, enjoy more. It's not unfun being out there. When we were filming with these folks, it was kind of a lot of fun. Yeah. Be driving around in these these forests and seeing Playing how this all fire. works. <laughs> <laughs> with fire. Yeah. Uh, just like when I was a kid. No. Um, <laughs> um it's a joke. <laughs> I got very nervous. I realized Ar arson's not funny. Um, it's a little. It's fun. a little fun. It's a little. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, it's a. Uh, it's 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 a fun job, and I can mm -hmm. see more people wanting to do that. Uh, and it's 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 not. You know, it's not unappealing to, to do these sorts of jobs. Well, something I was thinking about was, you know, with, with GPT-3 and right. a lot of AI is taking over sort of surprisingly jobs that are kind of software-based, you know, or at least amplifying the, uh, the power of one person to do what would have been the role of multiple people before, you know, sure. in terms of right. writing, in terms of art, in terms of code, you know. And it's interesting because I guess it was interesting. I hadn't thought of this before, but apparently, you know, People did in the 70s and 80s. But some of the jobs that you'd expect AI to be best at, like the mechanical robotic things, are actually better suited for humans because we are evolved to manipulate things in a physical world. And it may be not so, should not be so surprising that the, the jobs that involve at the core manipulating data, you know, whether it's programming or, or, or you know, transforming digital files are naturally better for computers. So when you talk about something like walking through the woods and like picking up stuff and setting fires, yeah, that's not a great job for a robot, but it could actually be a great right. job for a human. Or maybe, you know, there's some middle ground where it's like we have, you know, robotic assisted people so that we need fewer people and they're more capable of handling more ground or something. For sure, yeah. I mean, there's also robots out in the field doing this, monitoring oh, really? this, gathering data, the yeah. drones flying everywhere. They're monitoring the air quality to create a better data set. They have automated camera stands so they can monitor how the fire moves through this forest section that they're working on right now. So it's incredibly high tech. Like, it's, it's not just guys with torches. <laughs> <laughs> it's a lot of people were with... Um, with torches and shovels and tools for that sort of labor, that physical labor. But there's also a lot of people gathering data, analyzing the data, trying to figure out how they can get better at this to create better outcomes. It's funny just to think about it in that sense of like the strengths of computers and the strength of people coming together yeah. where you have this enormous, unprecedented you know, data collection and manipulation operation overseen by some smaller team of people and then just like tons of people in the field providing the manpower. So yeah. yeah. There's also, I think, an incentive as like most or as more work becomes sort of virtual into the spaces where the work is actually happening. Right. To to in find ways to incentivize jobs that, you know, 
almost quite literally make people touch grass, right. <laughs> be connected to reality a little bit more. Yeah. Um, and so I think that would be, in general, as we're moving into this just like space where it's sort of hard to orient ourselves yeah. into what like into what into like a reality that's independent of our, our different silos to have something like this that's grounded be like an, an initiative for for political will would be I think the impacts of that are hard to understate how much positivity that would probably get for the state that was able to do it. But I also sort of wonder if one of the things or the reasons why we might not be seeing as much emphasis on something like this is that a lot of the narrative around wildfires is also wrapped up in the narrative around climate change. And, you know, there's, there's part of this, like the droughts in California and just the rising temperatures and all those things is leading to more wildfires. And like, perhaps that is an accelerant on top of the accelerant that's already on the right. ground, but to say, oh, this is the cure for this wildfire thing versus like, oh, we need to get rid of fossil fuels. Maybe those are just like counteracting right. incentives and one is just winning over the other. Yeah, I think that's a big part of it. Like it is, I mean, climate definitely has an impact on this. Mm -hmm. A drier climate, less rain, those definitely doesn't help. <laughs> <laughs> but it isn't just that. It is so many different things and it becomes very political. I, and we saw this with some of the coverage of the wildfire that occurred in 2020 right. and, and, and 2019 where we saw you know, President Trump essentially saying, well, we just need to rake our forests more like they do in Finland and things like that. Yeah. I see again the forest fires are starting. It's starting again in California. I said, you got to clean your floors, you got to clean your forests. Many, many years of leaves and broken trees, and they're like, like so flammable. He's phrasing it poorly, but he wasn't entirely wrong in that moment. Yeah. And... Because he's phrasing it poorly and talking about it in an inarticulate way, it becomes easy to dismiss that whole argument. Totally. That, it, that he is sort of tainted with this very poorly characterized version of it. Um, but we do need to manage our forests way better. We need to look at how uh, native populations managed our forests and learn from that. And, and a lot of people are. A lot of people are doing this work. Yeah, when he made that forest point, it, it, it reminded me of the meme of like worst person I know makes a good point. <laughs> like he does that with so many things, and it's like, damn it. Yeah, and I think that's one of the problems with politicization is that it it it, it creates this mechanism by which people just want to point fingers at yeah. different aspects of the solution right. that's that are someone else's responsibility rather right. than taking proactive action together. Yeah. Like we need to address climate change. We also need to do these things on the ground. We need to change how we individually live in our land use patterns and stuff like that. Right. Um, but like, you know, just pointing to a different, someone else's, you know, field in order to excuse doing nothing isn't a real solution. Yeah. No. Politics is more either or than yes and, and that's a mm -hmm. problem. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. And it's like, yeah, we have to take care of climate change. We also have to take care of this <laughs> and we have to do that. <laughs> the problem is because everyone's so busy saying, well, this is that and this is that, we do none of those things. Right. Which is... <laughs> worse. <laughs> so much worse. And everything's on fire now. Yeah, and now everything's on fire. So It's sort of like the tragedy of the commons, but from like a status perspective. Right. You know, where if I admit that I have to, some role to play, then I'm the, you know, dumping ground. Like, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm volunteering for being the problem. Right. But if nobody volunteers to do their part, then we all end up worse yeah. off. So I'm curious, you know, from a, a standpoint of these Hard Reset episodes, uh, one of the things I really loved about this, and we don't talk about this much on the podcast, but the interview shots in this are gorgeous. 
like uh, some of my favorite interview shots in the entire episodes of of run of the series. I'm curious though, the wall of computer monitors. <laughs> that is amazing. <laughs> Absolutely insane. Yeah. But do they actually use those things yeah, for like do. like information or is it pretty it's, I mean, it's a little of both. Um, <laughs> they have so many tabs open. <laughs> yeah, they have a lot of tabs. Um, it, it's funny you say there's such great interview shots. Uh, Mike Rossetti, who is off camera here, actually filming this right now, <laughs> was the uh, director of photography for the shoot down in San Diego with those giant monitors behind him. Nice. And um, Adam Yafai from Chicago flew down to Florida to meet me there, and he filmed the interviews there and some of the footage at the, at the um, controlled burns. So... Um, so they should get a ton of credit for that. But yeah, I definitely also agree. These are a lot of fun to shoot. The beautiful visuals. The UC San Diego Supercomputing Center is bananas. They have these giant screens. They do a lot of great data visualization. Uh, in these places, they have just immense amounts of computing resources dedicated to how do you do a interactive 3D model. They work with people who use LiDAR data to like find ruins in the Andes mm. and all sorts of amazing things. It, these giant screens really do help with. It was a bit of a running joke as we were filming in UCSD. Like every time we turned a corner, there was like a, an array of six or eight monitors on a wall. <laughs> and so I just had to make a joke about it. I think we make a couple of jokes about that in the, in the episode <laughs> because it was just like, I guess no one here just has a Dell monitor. <laughs> That's just not good enough. Right. How executable and how scalable is this solution? Like what are sort of the ways in which this can become sort of real? So it's very scalable and very doable because they do this already pretty well on the east coast of the U.S. Mm -hmm. Not to say they do it perfectly in everywhere, but there are already folks that are way ahead of us as a state. Um, I say us as a Californian. Oh, I, I got uh, what you're putting down. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, there are lots of states that are, have a much better grasp on how to do this. If you go to Florida and the Osceola National Forest, they are doing a much better job of this because they had a disastrous fire in these regions that prompted a change in policy. So I think it's very doable. We have proof of concept in a lot of these other regions. And um, it just takes a matter of political will to make it happen. I mean, are we doing it? Because, I mean, obviously this project already exists. What scale is it being done at now versus the need? Yeah, I think we're doing, we are doing controlled burns in California. Unfortunately, we're just not, not doing them at the scale that we need to do. And part of what Wi-Fi is doing is trying to change the rate at which you can do them. Mm -hmm. So if you were going to go and do a, a controlled burn, if you're a forest manager who is trying to burn off some of the fuel that's accumulated in your forest, you have to do a ton of work analyzing ahead of time. You have to set a date. You have to make these predictions about what the weather will be like. You have to figure out how you're going to set up all these variables. And then on the day, if the weather is not exactly what you predicted, <laughs> you can't do it. Yeah. So it's right. a roll of the dice. You do all this work, mm -hmm. and then you can't actually do the thing that you need to do. Yeah. And what Wi-Fi is trying to do is is turn that around so it can say, hey, listen, here's the place that needs a controlled burn. Here are the right conditions for it. When these conditions are met, do the burn. How quickly do they have to mobilize? Well, if, you, if you're responding to the weather, you, you know, it could be a couple of days. Our, our, our weather prediction is not super accurate right. beyond a, a day or two at this point, right? So you definitely have to have kind of resources on call ready to go. Um, so it's not as though you could just, you know, know, you know, have a three-week lead time on these things. You really do have to be able to turn on a dime to respond to the weather more than anything because that's what drives a lot of the conditions that make these safe or unsafe to have. 
Right. I mean, as a good example of this, when we were trying to film with the crew in Florida, we had to change the flight a couple of times and reschedule, and they weren't sure we'd actually be doing the burn on that day because the weather kept changing day to day. Mm -hmm. So they're very reactive to the weather, as you would hope, right? <laughs> <laughs> you wouldn't want them to be like, well, I don't care if it's not raining. I, I, I'm going to do the burn anyway. Right, right, right. Um, it, I'm, I'm glad they're doing that. But it does make scheduling a film shoot real complicated. Right. And I imagine it makes scheduling the actual activity itself very complicated as well. But if that's your job, if you're on call for that and you have that scheduled kind of built into your the way you manage your workforce, then I think that's a doable thing. And we have on-call services in this country. We right. have things like ambulances. And police um, and firefighters. And, yeah, and there's that spectrum of urgency, but uh, we definitely have people who are on call for things. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I think it's definitely doable. It's just a question of how do we get that, you know, that political will and that momentum behind it as a movement. So I guess we should move on to viewer comments and any questions that the audience had about this episode. I'm curious, Toby, what were some of the questions the audience had? What were some of the, the themes you saw? Uh, there were a lot of good questions, a lot of really thoughtful ones. It kind of varies, you know, the tenor of the comments from video to video. Um, but people brought up a lot of examples from around the world. Um, uh, one question that came up a, a lot is about the role of herbivores and natural wildlife hmm. in regulating, um, you know, the, the, the undergrowth and stuff like that. Yeah, it's a great question. Uh, so there's, that's a huge part of it. The other part of it is that a lot of animals rely on fire. Mm -hmm. So absent human intervention, forests would burn all the time right. because lightning happens, all sorts of other things that could spark a fire. And many species have evolved for that. Many species of plant have evolved for that. Many species of animals have evolved for that. And um, when we were in the Osceola National Forest, we were touring a lot that had been burned, I think, a month before. And it was full of birds and all sorts of other woodland critters. So it was definitely something where the animals were thriving, even though there was a regular introduction of fire to this. Do animals eat the underbrush? Yeah, sometimes the wrong animals eat the underbrush is the problem. That the presence of uh, lots and lots of underbrush that we continually build up over year uh, might introduce the wrong kind of predators or, an, uh, or, or allow certain types of predators to have more cover as they hunt other animals uh, down to an unsustainable population level. So there's all sorts of things that can be impacted there. Do large animals like, is there anything else that can kind of clear that? Not at the level we're talking about. We're not talking about a lot of grass. Mm -hmm. That is a problem. There are fast fuels like grass that, are, that need to be, you know, eaten and munched by ruminants like cows or whatever. But a lot of these are things like shrubs, bushes, small trees. And we don't, there's not a really an animal that can kind of like graze our forests and bring that down. Mm -hmm. We actually had a couple questions around uh, desalination, basically. And the idea that generally what we should be doing is just desalinating so much water that we can use it to fight wildfires. Um, yeah, I guess if you wanted to continue to build up fuel in forests, you could do that. I, mean, I think that's the problem is that we, it's not that we don't have enough water to fight forests, mm -hmm. fires. It's that we don't, we don't manage the fires well. And mm -hmm. we have built up this accumulation where now the forest, instead of having a fire that trees can recover from, because there's so much fuel built up, they burn into, in, it, it just, they're cataclysm. They, they wipe out trees that would otherwise survive a, for, a forest fire. Yeah, that sounds right. Like ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure, really. Right. 
even, you know, though I'm generally like positively disposed to yeah. desalination as a solution. I just don't think that the math makes total sense. Right. Yeah. Um, and it's not, again, it's not a shortage of water necessarily to fight fires. That is the big problem. We have, we have water to fight fires. The fires are just growing so fast, so quick. They yeah. create their own weather mm -hmm. and there's no amount of water in the world that you can move that quickly to mm -hmm. these regions to, to fight these things. You have to be able to reduce the fuel and, 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 and work on the, the supply of the fuel for these fires to, to exist. So another question that came up, and this has been kind of a part of the dialogue in California where, you know, I live as well, um, is the need to control man-made developments. And mm -hmm. so there's, on one hand, you have the scale of the fires, which is, you know, larger. And on the other hand, you have this other issue where we now have more stuff around areas that burn, right. you know, in the building in like the wild, wildlife urban interface, I believe it's called. Um, and that puts more people, puts more valuable infrastructure and homes at risk. And so how does that piece enter this puzzle? Yeah, I mean, I think, I, I think of it as like a separate but parallel problem. Mm -hmm. I think you still have the problem of a fuel buildup, even if there's no town built in that forest. Mm -hmm. So even if no one lives there, even if there is no human infrastructure to be damaged by this fire, it's still going to be a hot, disastrous fire because we have 100 years of fuel built up. Mm -hmm. In the places where we do have homes, communities that are built in these, you know, this sort of interface between human-built infrastructure and, and wildlands, they are definitely the most at risk. And I do think there has to be something done in terms of encouraging people to build in ways that are more fire resilient. We need to have more fire resilient communities in these places because if we did it right, there would be fires all the time mm -hmm. in these places. And you would just have to have built your community in a way where a fire wouldn't wipe it all out, as happened in both Paradise and Greenville and a few other places in Middletown, um, where we have seen these fires just ravage these communities. And it's worth noting that a, a lot of that is caused by, you know, the urban sprawl that's caused by regulations that basically make it impossible to build anything but right. sprawl-style development, even in our right. big cities, which pushes people, you know, new construction out into these areas. Right. And it also... If you're a firefighter, you then have that much more to protect, yeah. you know? So it makes, it, it, you know, it, it spreads the, we're talking about the manpower necessary. It also, you know, has an impact on that. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Part of me, just even listening to these comments, you know, I wonder how much people grok what the actual issue is here. And, yeah. and maybe some of this has to do with the way that we cover forest or wildfires in general. But, you know, we often talk about the lived environments and the homes and the things that are destroyed and the acreage and, and whatnot. But, it, you know, so little coverage has been paid attention to the fact that this is a forest management problem. Right. And that's really what it is, is that, you know, as, you know, our... I mean, our government as stewards of certain lands has sort of just failed to do uh, a basic service that they should be doing to protect yeah, the land. I, I, I want to, to play devil's advocate against that. I would say I get the impulse of let's prevent every fire. Yeah. And in a way they did their job too well. Right. So if that's your intention and it's a good one to protect all these homes and communities right. in the forest, they're just, they didn't, I don't think anyone foresaw how this would result mm -hmm. in this really disastrous chain of events where we have just built up this massive amount of fuel. All right. So uh, in their defense, the, the people who are managing our forests 
didn't do this maliciously or out of Oh, no, no. They just did it because that seemed like the right thing to do without thinking about the second and, and third order consequences. And, and to your point, that's also people, we couldn't predict the magnitude and the scale of this, no. right? So it didn't seem like they were making a meaningful trade-off necessarily. It's like, right. we got this under control. Right. Lo and behold, we don't. Right. And now we have to deal with the, the impacts of this. Yeah. Exactly. And I think one of the other issues is that we've always had new problems that are going to evolve over time in society. Sure. But one thing we've also done is we've sort of tied our own hands in some cases with sure. like, you know, you're talking about all of the work that needs to be done just to address, you know, some acres yeah. uh, uh, of land in California when we have so much of it. And it's like some of our, the tools that we would ordinarily use to adapt to new situations have been constrained by not imagining the scale at which we would need to use them. For sure. Yeah. And firefighting is a, is a profession and a discipline that has been slow to change mm -hmm. as well, where yeah. the way we manage and, and, and fight fires has, it's, you know, they still use a shovel and an axe and <laughs> water. And these are very, and, and they use them for very good reasons, which is that they work and you right. know they're going to work. Like you don't have to worry about rebooting your axe. Right? <laughs> it just works. A smart axe sounds <laughs> right. terrible. Right. Like, this stuff works. You can rely on it. And in a situation where you are fighting a fire, you do not want to have to troubleshoot it. Right. So um, I'm glad that we have really well defined and relied upon tools. But there are new tools that are s coming online in terms of using drones to monitor for these things and, right. that. and that's been a little bit slow to be adopted. Slower than I think in, you would see in other industries. Right. But more and more we are seeing that. They are starting to use different uh, um, tools to monitor and, and fight fires as well. There's also an active debate and I don't know enough about it to weigh in on it personally, but between whether we put too much money towards like aerial firefighting and stuff like that, where we have like planes and helicopters that dump right. water on it and people sometimes criticize that as just being ineffective compared to these more preventative measures or things like that. Yeah, I, 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 wouldn't, I wouldn't know enough to weigh in on that. But I also would say I wouldn't want to stop doing that when you have a fire threatening a community. Right. It's, it's any, anything you can do to prevent and, uh, that from happening is, is, is a worthwhile investment. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's, it's a yes and. We also have to prevent them. We also have to do the preventative work. And even if we do that, we're still going to need to have people who can respond to fires that go out of control and are going to have consequences we don't want. Totally. Um, we have a few comments, interestingly, from people who like claim to work with the Forest Service or have worked. Hmm. They do not agree with each other. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, what do you do when there's multiple whistleblowers? But... Um, there's one person who says that I worked with the Forest Service for years and it's all a waste of money. A lot of these control burns get away from things and it's just a bottomless pit of money, blah, 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 blah. Well, controlled, yep. controlled fires do get out of control yeah. and that has happened. It's happened recently and it's, it's, it has started fires. So all the more reason to spend the time up front analyzing the right conditions to have them within. We're not currently able to do that because Wi-Fi isn't the standard for this yet, and I, which isn't to say it's a panacea either. Mm -hmm. There will always be some element of risk to mm -hmm. this. Um, it's not a perfect solution. There isn't a perfect solution. There's just trade-offs. Mm -hmm. I think I just quoted Chandler. Did you I did just Chandler? quote Chandler. Chandler. <laughs> Wormed his way in there, man. Yeah. It's, true. it's true, though, but it's a very true thing. Yeah, and he's just quoting Thomas Sowell. So. Oh, well, there you go. <laughs> Um, and then on the other hand, someone says, I spent three years fighting fires out west and prescribed burning and resource management burning are the best tools out there. And they date all the way back to when Native Americans ran these lands. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I, I believe yeah. in both those statements. Mm -hmm. 
I think they can both be true from different mm-hmm. perspectives. Mm-hmm. One thing I'm sort of interested about is we, you know, we keep going back to how the Native Americans managed the lands. Um, at the same time, you know, there was a time before Native Americans. Mm-hmm. And is it just a question of like, you know, at some point, a natural equilibrium is going to be reached one way or the other? Like, what is the natural state, quote unquote, before Native Americans were there? Yeah, I mean, fires would occur regularly before Native Americans were in North America. And um, you can find evidence of that in looking at how, uh, even if you can't find direct evidence of it, you can find indirect evidence in it and how animals have evolved Mm -hmm. how plants have evolved to require fire to survive. Mm -hmm. Um, You cannot have those animals otherwise. If you have animals that require the kind of clear open area underneath a forest canopy to survive. They couldn't have done that in a regime where there is no forest fires because over time that area is going to be overgrown with small underbrush, which is what happens in some of these places. And that's why we see, um, you know, certain types of birds going extinct because these places are perfect for their predators. Mm. Uh, So there is indirect evidence right there that we need to have had these over time regularly occurring in these forests. Yeah, well, that also gets to a question of with some of these. I mean, these these fires are bad, but they're bad in a lot of different ways. That's and natural disasters in general that are a little bit hard to sometimes like pin down. But like the fact that we live close to these things right. like, amplifies the danger, mm-hmm. right? Like these occur naturally. Hurricanes occur naturally. Tornadoes occur naturally. All of these things are are things that will occur in the wild without our involvement. Right. But because we live and have built the environment in such a way, the fact that these things also still exist are really inconvenient for us, right? Right. In a ways that they might not be inconvenient to the same way to the wild animals that exist in there. Right. Um, and even though it might be con- inconvenient for them, they can't do anything about it, but right. we can. Or they, they can do things about it. They're actually more resourceful than we might think. Right, fair, fair point. So a lot of these animals have very good instincts about how to respond to a fire. Right, which is typically run. Yeah, but not always. A lot of them will burrow and oh, find protection underground. And there's a lot of different survival strategies that have evolved in these in these um, these environments. Yeah. Certain chipmunks will even build supercomputers. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> but I, it just makes me think about you know when we talk about certain types of events and we and we talk about it in catastrophic language. It 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 assumes that the event itself is the catastrophe when it's it's our proximity to the event is the thing that's catastrophic. I think that with the exception with this is that these are actually unnaturally powerful fires now. Right. We have gone past the point where the fire that occurs in these places is the same type of fire we saw a thousand or more years ago hmm. because they are burning hotter. They're burning more intense. And they're doing, because there's such a buildup of fuel, these fires are scarring the landscape in a way that more ancient fires would never have done because the fuel hadn't had a hundred years to build up. But now with a century of this unburnt fuel, these fires are explosive. Mm. They are doing things that animals are not evolved to survive, that plants are not evolved to survive. And so that is the problem. These are actual disasters independent of the human perspective. Gotcha. It's also interesting because, you know, it shows how connected we are even to areas that we might not visit every day yeah. where like, you know, you see the skies overhead are just dark. Right. You see that in Australia too, or, yeah. you know, the air is you know, harmful to breathe. Yeah, it was the most dystopian thing in the world in the middle of 2020 to, to wake up Yeah, and it never was daytime. Mm-hmm. I can't remember what day it was, what the date was, but it was, the skies were just dim red in San Francisco all day. Yeah. It was the, it was, I think 
maybe not the worst day, but it was one of the worst days of that year. And it definitely impressed upon me just how dire this is getting. Yeah, I mean, the, the photos from that day are crazy. Mm-hmm. Like, it looks like the worst dystopian sci-fi movie. Yeah, it's, it was apocalyptic. Yeah. You mentioned, you know, you wish you could have spent more time talking about why we don't do this right, right. now or why this isn't more widely used. And I'm curious, you know, how you would have executed that in the episode. Um, and part of me thinks about, you know, people like uh, California's Governor Gavin Newsom, very media savvy person, clearly has his eyes on the presidential uh, uh, run. On a presidential run, either 2024 or later. I'm curious, would you uh, approach to interview him to see? what he thinks about something like this, even if he's aware of something like this? So I think that's a great question. I definitely would be open to interviewing someone like Gavin Newsom. I think it would take someone at the governor level or above, you know, even at the national level to be able to get the kind of resources um, to make this a possible uh, solution. I think that it's something we need to think about as a, just a, almost like a public works, like a almost New Deal style public works Initiatively, this is a huge undertaking to be able to do this at the scale we need to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can't really say, "Well, why hasn't Governor Newsom done that? Why didn't Jerry right. Brown do this, or whomever?" Uh, it's such a big deal. It, it needs to be everybody. We need to get more people involved in this. There, there just needs to be more public awareness, which means people need to start paying attention to these stories outside of fire season when when there aren't active fires happening. We need to start thinking about this ahead of time. And there needs to be just a political groundswell around fixing this. And if you can fix this in somewhere like California, Mm -hmm. that is a incredible investment you're making uh, in terms of, you know, improving our climate situation, improving our environmental situation, improving our water situation. But it takes a tremendous amount of will to make that kind of investment. Um, I'm texting Gavin right now. And he's <laughs> me. Um, I will say just like as a resident, you know, people talk about it a lot. And you know, I've certainly seen Gavin yeah. Newsom standing in front of a burned downtown saying this cannot happen anymore and stuff like that. Um, and some programs are happening, but it's, you know, everything's more difficult than it seems. Right. Um, and... Sometimes, you know, I, I'm not super familiar with the politics around, you know, preventing wildfires, but sometimes you have different interest groups or different communities who want different approaches, who have a different solution in mind and stuff like that. And that all kind of like, you know, everyone wanting to fall, solve the problem in one way or the other ends up sort of colliding and you get this sort of, can I say cluster f- Yeah. <laughs> yes. okay. Cluster f- is a wildly appropriate term. Yeah. So... From the issues I've been involved in, sometimes that's what you get, is that there's so many cooks in the kitchen that you end up not, you know, doing one thing that's as effective as it could be. Yeah, I mean, this is the problem of politics, is that there's too many cooks mm-hmm. and and weirdly too few coalitions. Right. Because um, it, it, so we just end up being in the stasis mm-hmm. of just not really getting anything solved. Yeah. Well, everything else burns and it looks like the meme, this is fine. Like, <laughs> that, that is the state of, of things. Now, I'm, I'm curious, did you have anything that you were close to doing that would be able to answer that question in the episode? I wouldn't say that we, we dove too deep into that when mm-hmm. we started putting this episode together. I would say that we definitely wanted to talk about 
how people might get involved. That's a perennial topic mm-hmm. that we, we look at because people, our audience definitely is a DIY audience. They want to try things out their right. own. Um, it's very hard to try a controlled burn on your own, but please do not. Please do. <laughs> it also might be not. why the, uh, the wildfire stuff doesn't perform as well. It could be that. Cause it it's not be. DIY. <laughs> right. Um, well, we did have actually one other video, um, sure. a few years ago about like communities that were fighting fire with fire in California on a more small scale. Right. Like this was specifically a town that wanted to clear out brush right. around itself to make it more fire resilient. Right. So if you are in that area, it might be worth looking into seeing if there's any sort of volunteer efforts where you could be one of those boots mm-hmm. on the ground. But, yeah. you know. Yeah, and, and uh, you can advocate for political change and, mm-hmm. and try and get more of these policies put in place. That's absolutely something you can do. And you can look at forestry as a career. Mm-hmm. I think that a lot of people coming out of college are going to be looking at a job landscape that's very different. And forestry is cool. Mm-hmm. It's, there's a, a ton of science that, that, to, that is still being you know, defined and understood. It's a job that engages, I think, every sense that you have. You're mm-hmm. out in the forest, you're managing things, you're also thinking critically in an office where you're working with data and um, trying to find solutions to really tough problems. And it's a very, it's a very cool field to get involved in. So I hope more people will think about forestry seriously. And I think I hope that more people will start to demand that we have a better forest management regime put in place. That's something we see interest with on our channel. Like sometimes I've asked, like, you know, in the context of remote work, like, would you rather be remote or in an office? And a fair amount of people are like, I don't want to be indoors. (laughs) You know, I want to be working out in the world, you know? Yeah. And I think there's a lot lot to be said for that. Yeah. And if you want to have a meaningful impact on the world, Mm -hmm. you couldn't ask for a much better opportunity than that. Yeah. So my favorite part is hearing the mean comments. You 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 have some masochistic instinct, I think. Oh, it's not an instinct. It's like an, it's like a lifestyle choice. Mm-hmm. All right. <laughs> that, uh, that may have been too much. <laughs> too many irrelevant, trying to be funny fillers in this video. Such a shame because the main topic itself is good. We are trying to be relevant. That's true. <laughs> uh, <laughs> trying to be irrelevant or trying to be irreverent. Irrelevant. Too many irrelevant. Oh, too many irrelevant. Jokes. Stay on topic. That's Stay on saying. topic. All right. They don't like the jokes. I know. Some people do not like the jokes. Yeah. It's a minority, I will say. Like, you know, I definitely get more pro-joke <laughs> sentiments than, uh, no, you know. Good. But you didn't ask for that. I, you know, I get it. I mean, it is a serious topic, but I mean, actually, I think humor is all more necessary when you talk about these things because mm-hmm. it can get real dark real fast. Mm. All right. We have the s- simple... Nope. Wildfires have to be stopped. Exclamation points. All of them. <laughs> yes. Yeah. You could thin out these exclamation points if you wanted to. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I get it. I mean, I'm not pro wildfires, mm-hmm. but seems like we can't just keep doing the same thing. Yeah. You have to stop them in advance rather than down the pipe. Right. Yeah. yeah. We might be on the same side and we don't realize it. <laughs> Finally. Why did this video have to bash Florida? <laughs> Doesn't have anything to do with the topic at hand to starting to dislike this channel. Um, if you drive north from Orlando, Florida, past the truck stop that has a strip club, but before you get to the discount gun warehouse, ah, Florida, you'll find the Osceola National Forest. I mean, Florida doesn't make it hard. (laughs) (laughs) These are facts. I I literally, on the way, driving from Orlando to the Osceola National Forest, drove past billboards 
for a gun warehouse and a truck stop with a strip club in it. And I thought the juxtaposition of these things is so bananas. This Driving uh, literally with like Disney World in the rearview mirror <laughs> <laughs> that I could not not include that in the piece. Yeah, there's and so many different jokes. It's, and it, it was a, definitely an oh Florida moment. I mean, <laughs> Florida is beautiful and awesome in its own way. I'm not trying to say it's a bad place. Mm-hmm. It's just a wildly different place than I'm used to. Like, it's just... <laughs> You go, wow. You go, wow. So that didn't even... It didn't it's get it's factually facts. accurate. <laughs> it's a documentary. <laughs> this is real. <laughs> that really Eat happened, guys. to go there. <laughs> uh, I didn't make that up. I'm not that funny. Florida makes this material for me. <laughs> Drive past the gun warehouse. <laughs> yeah. And it's... I mean, I feel like every time I go to Florida, something like that happens and I go, it's like a different country. It's so different than the rest of the United States for whatever reason. I mean, the United States is a bunch of different countries. Right. <laughs> State means country. Right. Yeah, yeah I get it. Yeah. So. But yeah, it is a whole other world sometimes. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I, I know. sorry if you're from Florida. Uh, end of sentence. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for watching this episode of the Hard Reset Podcast. We enjoyed putting it together and hope that you enjoyed watching it. Also, please make sure you like and subscribe and check out the original episode about Wi-Fire and what they're doing to help prevent wildfires. I also have to pee really badly, so go <laughs> ahead right. and cut. cut this. Save it for the fire. <laughs> Do your part. Save it for the fire. Wow. <laughs> <laughs>